Welcome to Friars and Film. We are three Catholic priests from the Order of Preachers, and we're here, as always, to talk about the movies. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're doing a film that's a little bit more recent than most of the films we do. One from 2007, No Country for Old Men. This is, of course, by the Cohen brothers, which is why it occurred to us to do it, having just done Joel Cohen's uh, rendition of Macbeth. This is film with some great actors. We have Tommy Lee Jones, Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin. It's a sort of new Western. Some people call it a neo-Western. Um, this is a film that's that points to and is drawn from the great uh, novelist Cormac McCarthy. So he's the one who wrote the book on which this is based. And um, I have read a number of his, his books, and I will say that every time that I have read some of his stuff, I've just been very impressed. And um, I'd like to start this whole conversation thinking about the ending of this movie. Tommy Lee Jones, who plays the sheriff, Ed, he's talking to his wife about a dream that he had last night, the previous night. So he explains this dream and he says that he dreamt that he was a child with his father and they were both on horseback and his father rode past him in the dark night. It was cold outside. They were, they were riding on horses across the snow. They were in the mountains. It's so cold and windy and dark that the father has his head down. He's wrapped himself in a blanket. And the boy uh, notices that the father has a little horn, maybe like a sheep's horn or something, in which he's carrying a coal. So he's carrying fire with him, and he's journeying on ahead of the boy to go and light a fire somewhere out there in the dark and in the cold. And the last thing that Tommy Lee Jones' character says is, and I knew in my dream that whenever I got there to where he was riding on ahead, he would be there. To me, that scene of just a man on horseback in the dark, in the cold, swaddled in blankets to keep himself warm, holding a little, little, little bit of fire, a little piece of coal in a, in a, a sheep's horn, um, that really sums up to me what Cormac McCarthy is all about, which is that he paints these extremely bleak and barren landscapes and worlds and therefore, sometimes people think of him as, as nihilistic or as extremely dark. And yet there is always, in, in, in the books that I've read of his, there's always a small and yet very real fire that is alive. And so he's always insisting on the presence of a fire of goodness that is alive in a bleak and cold world. I think that's a great way to think not only about Cormac McCarthy's novels, but about this movie as a whole. It's a movie that jumps out at the viewer as being incredibly bleak, incredibly um, brutal. It's, the whole thing starts off with a very ugly and graphic murder scene. And yet, for all of the, the darkness, um, I am convinced that there is uh, a fire inside uh, of the movie and an insistence on goodness. I, I look forward to talking about that more. Yeah, there's always this theme. You know, you take his border trilogy, All the Pretty Horses, 
the crossing and cities of the plain which i absolutely love for his style i mean there's sometimes i remember actually being in the novitiate we were all there together in cincinnati and when in all the pretty horses when after all of their tough journeying the teenagers arrive into the valley where they're going to work at the hacienda and the ranch just his description in evening of the sunset and the birds flying i mean i Anybody could pull this up. I mean, I, I'm not doing it any justice. But I remember actually throwing the book to the ground and being like, unfair. You know, it's unfair to write this well. And I was telling somebody about this too, a fellow friend up here at Dartmouth, uh, Charlie Clark. And he was saying too that he always quotes in certain classes he gives another line from All the Pretty Horses about... Something about the ironworks of God is the lightning in the skies are sitting around the campfire. I mean, as as an author, he has these drop shot lines which are so good. But you're you're right to say, besides that, Father Luke, that thematically, I mean I think McCarthy's style draws a lot of people in, but then thematically, he really is a lot of chiaroscuro, the the, the light and dark of the human race. Uh, of landscapes, too, because I wouldn't say his landscapes are all bleak. I think they're both light and dark, and so are the characters, and so are the events. I'll mention two things. At the end of the Border Trilogy, with no spoilers, I just remember one of the two main characters is yet again found on the side of the road as an older man, and he's taken in by another anonymous Mexican couple, and he's given a bed, and he's given a meal, and there's this constant generosity on behalf of people feeding him throughout years of his life, throughout a lot of tough events. And that's a major theme of that trilogy is the world is modernizing. It is still violent. People question God. It's theodicy. But in the midst of that, there's this love of neighbor that shines out and it shines out and it keeps shining out relentlessly. Or you take the road, the bleakest of all you know, post-apocalypse America, father and son traveling down to reach the the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. And, I mean, there's these scenes where in the midst of an, an apocalypse and people are cannibals, this father looking at his son as he's sleeping, and, he, like, he calls him his sacrament, you know, um, source of grace, the goodness of his boy. Yeah, McCarthy, it's certainly a theme, this sort of light shining in darkness in small moments but incessant moments. And I love that about his themes He's like Quentin Tarantino meets Terrence Malick. He's like both. <laughs> One of the questions, especially toward the end, is whether the world is recently in decline or whether it has always been evil. And um, the sheriff might think, oh, this is something that's happened in my lifetime. Or he may have a kind of spiritual maturation where he sees that actually these, uh, these evils have been there a while. And so I think that's one of the things that gives him the idea that dreams are worth pondering because the visible world and his own timeline is beginning to evanesce. He feels like he can no longer stay here. It's no longer a place to dwell. And so he begins to look to the next world. But I think from the beginning, what you have is the powers of the invisible realm especially the evil powers, breaking in on the, the ordinary day-to-day visible realm. So at the beginning, these, these Mexican cartels, it's like a, a drug underworld, uh, coming into the kind of ordinary, irenic world of Texas. But it's also 
incentivized by the world of high finance. So you have these two invisible worlds that most people are not aware of. All the civilians that you see that that Chigurh encounters uh, and treats like cattle. These two invisible realms of dark power begin to impinge upon ordinary people. So, you know, that makes a Christian think of the demonic animals as well, because animals are sort of like the kind of being that are closest to us in the visible realm. There's a lot of dogs here. There's a lot of, there's the deer scene where he shoots the deer. Pretty explicit comparison between the guy who gets killed and the deer who's shot. And then there's comparisons between the wounded, the black dog especially, and Anton Chigurh at the end when he's sort of limping away. But, you know, as animals are to us, in a certain way, we are to angels. It's not a perfect analogy, but some of the demonic influence in the film comes by way of degrading people to a bestial level. You know, so when the guy is killed by that that machine, that pressure thing without a bullet, he's being likened to a cow by this demonic agent, which is coming again from the Mexican underworld, but also from the, the realm of American high finance. And also drugs, too. I mean, Benedict XVI, he likened drugs to a kind of false ecstasy, a false mysticism. And drugs are so prevalent, you know, in our world as a kind of, like, substitute for religion, you know, a way to find meaning. Again, there I see a demonic influence. So, so I think that's a lot of what's happening in the film, like the, the visible world is collapsing. The, the, the darkness that is ordinarily at the peripheries or at the limits of our world is sort of uh, impinging. Hmm. Wow. The, the, uh, the character of Javier Bardem, I believe his name in the movie is Anton. Um, it definitely makes sense to think of him as a kind of dark angelic, which is to say a satanic force. And that, that really is kind of how he's presented Every time he comes to somebody, because he's an agent of death, he kind of gives them a kind of personal apocalypse <laughs> moment where they, they look at his face and they suddenly realize that this is their own personal apocalypse. The great, or Probably the greatest moment of um, in which we see this in the film is pretty early on in the movie, that very famous scene, I believe, that Anton walks into the gas station and is going to uh, flip the coin, right, to see if the man lives or dies. And just seeing the, the change of, of ex- expression and emotion on the man's face as he, as he realizes what is ex- exactly is at stake is just such a gripping moment. And it's a moment that speaks to, you know, what, what that moment will be like for all of us you know, regarding both uh, the prospect of physical death as well as the prospect of eternal death. That coin flip, it, it asks the question, are the forces of good and evil reducible to mere random chance or is it an actual malevolent force you know so the guy likes to flip a coin as if to say that oh whether you live or die this is up to pure chance and indeed he even even at the very end he presents his own presence in the world as just the result of, of chance he says i i arrive just like the coin did i'm only here and i only am who i am due to the chance events and indeed, there are lots of chance events um, throughout the film, you know, like when he gets hit by the car in the car accident. That's just a random freak moment of uh, two independent lines of causality running into each other. And so that's how he 
tries to present the presence of evil in the world, that it's just, it's just a bunch of, of chance forces. And yet that is put to the test at the very last conversation where, where again, the coin flip returns, right? He was talking with Llewellyn's uh, girlfriend or wife, Carla, and she says, no, the coin does not have a say. It's, it's just you. You're the one who has the say. And I think she's kind of putting the lie to that, that idea that the presence of evil in the world is reducible to just a bunch of chance occurrences that are unfavorable to certain people. And by virtue of that, I think she's also putting the lie, and therefore the whole film puts the lie to anyone who would propose that evil in the world is just reducible to chance occurrences that don't go well for certain parties. And I think the film is trying to say that, no, there's, there's an actual malevolent force in the world which is not just bad things not going the way we hope them to go. There's such a thing as an evil spirit. There's such a thing as a devil. And we see his works in the world. I've seen this film before, but when I just rewatched it, I was thinking about Chigurh's motivation. What's his psychology like? He could have just been a hitman or an enforcer, but he's a kind of philosopher too. I mean, if you are doing something that's frowned upon or immoral, uh, you have to rationalize it. And he certainly does have a code, so he has a worked out way of thinking. It may also be that just late 20th century popular physics convinces people that everything is determined. Whenever he puts the the wrapper on the counter and it expands, I think that's a kind of image of universal entropy or cosmic entropy where chaos increases in the world with every event. And this chaos just keeps increasing. And he understands himself to be a part of this deterministic worldview because he says, I got here the way the quarter got here and so on. So he's abdicating responsibility in one way, but he's also over against this determinism, asserting his own autonomy and individuality by giving himself this code, this personal code, and showing everyone how the rule that they follow is actually worse than his rule. And he's a little bit disappointed about how unreflective people are, about how unphilosophical they are in the face of the darkness, really, the human darkness from a human point of view of the deterministic worldview. At one point he says, are you asking me whether anything is wrong? Is that really what you're asking me, that? And then he says, you don't know what you're talking about. Kind of an interesting sub-theme is how these country folk, these ordinary people, sometimes speak truer than they know. The policeman says, hell's bells, they even shot the dog. Again, well, yeah, I mean, maybe demons were involved in that scuffle. And then the sheriff says, it'll do until the mess gets here. The apocalypse, the end of the world. So, So he's sort of angry that ordinary people don't reflect on our position in the world. And that's part of the justification that he gives himself for um, visiting destruction upon ordinary people. There's coloration from the author himself. It's never just to say, Here's, here are these universal questions. You know, just like Terrence Malick makes every person who falls in love a philosopher, it's because Terrence Malick's a philosopher. You know, it's like whether you're raising your kids in the yard or going on a date in Los Angeles, it's always sort of... I mean, he's in his movie Night of Cups, he's quoting from the Phaedo, you know, while the Ben Affleck, not, or Christian Bale's taking these girls on dates at the L.A. Aquarium and saying, you know, just like the soul used to have wings and what happened. I mean, in the same way, too, McCarthy's preoccupation, I'm not an expert, but reading a fair number of his books, 
violence is very much this ongoing question of his, and it especially has to deal with the question of agency. I mean, you see in this book, as well as in Blood Meridian with the, with the judge, who's sort of like this prophetic violence lawmaker and all these things, there's, there's this sense of human agents certainly contribute um, to, to violence. It's not just a, a, a chain of events. And then you get sort of the theodicy, maybe God is violent. I mean, that's especially in the Border Trilogy and others. It's a question of why is, why is life this way when none of us would like it to be so? But I will say two things about this um, in terms of the question of violence and evil and agency. The first would be that him questioning certain especially violent actors, especially in this book and film, is terrifying. Like, I remember when, when seeing this film the first time I was in college. I remember exactly where I saw it. I was at my friend Bobby Shea's house, and it had one best picture, so we were all kind of saying, this is going to be a good movie. And, and style-wise, from the start, you know, it's this is like one of those films that captures you it's like pre-Netflix series. It's, it's, it's so much is actually, I, I do think in music and in film, there are sort of um, watershed moments. And I think stylistically, to be on the border in Texas, the whole drug scene, um, the style of, of color in the film, they're, 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 this film was very influential style-wise. And I was drawn in. Bobby Shea, by the way, is now a priest, Diocese of Bismarck, very good man. Um, went to Rome to study like Father Allen. But I, I remember being very disturbed. You know, this came out, the next year was Dark Knight and the Batman trilogy and with the Joker. Those were two films two years in a row, and I thought, is it responsible to show this kind of evil up close? I think it's next-level stuff compared to, you know, you take a serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. If you watch Silence of the Lambs or anything, it's it's scary, it's chilling, because you see a sort of mental illness on display. But here, in these two films, there's sort of the, the terrorist on display, the, 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 the calculated philosophical actor. And, and so my first point being that such people are clearly out there and they do exist, but I, but I, I wonder how much philosophy is enmeshed. Like, for instance, I've, I know this gets a little bit off script or whatever, but I've watched interviews with certain um, real cartel guys or, or mafia hitmen. So when you're driving, whether this is the New York mob or whether it's Mexico or Colombia, and if you watch these, these are guys who have killed a lot of people, but they see it as a game. Um, it's sort of, well, you play by the rules and you move forward, and it's chilling, but I think in art... Art can kind of dress it up with this glamour, the glamour of evil, which we reject in our baptismal promises, There's, which, I, which I think is a, is a little bit of art. I think when you look at the worst evils on record and you interview these people, and they're always trying to make excuses and whatever else, I actually think violence is not as glamorous, is not as philosophical. I think some of that's the magic of art and saying we're creating this character. Um, I, I, I actually question if there are characters like like Anton himself that, that kind of are so, or like the Joker. I don't know. I, I, I leave with a little bit of doubt whether that's kind of art mixing with real-life violence. My second point being this, McCarthy doesn't come to a conclusion. I mean, this is, um, violence may have many causes, human 
situational nature and its violence or demonic. But there is, we don't say that God is the cause, but he allows for this. I, I like films. I like books that explore the perennial questions. I think that's why it's gripping. I was probably initially disappointed when I first watched No Country to Old Men. I thought, come on, Tommy Lee Jones, you're going to just give up. And maybe it was, I don't think in the book that's emphasized as much. I think it's more of like, hold on to the light, guard the light. This is our role in this world that is violent. And I think there's a strong emphasis on guarding the light and how that actually is passed on to others. I feel like the movie, maybe it's just the the sad hanging face of Tommy Lee Jones, but there is kind of like a tiredness of I'm an old man. This world has gotten worse and I'm going to, I'm going to walk away. I was kind of disappointed as a 21 year old that he walked away. Now looking back at it, I'm I'm just more interested than disappointed, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But there is this question of him and that's a whole nother philosophical question, not only the causes of evil, but has it gotten worse recently and our older and I've seen that I've seen older men who 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 look at our generation and are just saying what happened to the world and I love that that's on film because that does happen in real life and I don't think we have a easy conclusion has the world gotten worse it certainly goes through chapters and changes and maybe it has gotten worse yeah both of you are touching on the character of Anton and the way that his he's very philosophical I suspect that that is um, not terribly common in the so to sp- in the so-called real world, but um, I do think that is a a common way that McCarthy likes to present his villain characters, and it allows him and it allows the books that he writes to not only present evil, but rather to ask questions about it. And so, to have a philosophical villain allows the novelist, the director, and the viewer to all sort of reflect on questions about the evil and what it is, um, which is, of course, what we've all been doing. Um, in addition to the evil character, though, I think it's also important to think about, indeed, the the good characters that are there. Questions are asked about them as well, you know. So, like, there's there is so to think about Llewellyn. This is my first time watching this. I was shocked when he's killed just two thirds of the way through the movie because, as a uh, someone who was used to Hollywood movies, um, I am you know when those first characters are presented, you are expecting all three of them to make it to the end of the film, and maybe one or two or all of them are going to die at the very end. But there is going to be some kind of final climactic moment, and yet not only does that not happen, but you you don't even see his death. You see it from afar, like you you know you're with you're with Ed in the car, and there's something going on, and he's just like, "Oh, what happened?" and he walks over there and discovers that and and you as the viewer discover that like the the protagonist or who the one who you thought was the protagonist of the film is dead, and of course, that touches on some of the questions that were asked to Llewellyn's character you know earlier in the film where there's that other character who's the federal agent or something who's been hired to to help with the case and He's talking with Llewellyn and he says, hey, you're not ready for this. You're just, you're not a hero. You're not, you're, you're just a guy who stumbled upon a crime scene. And so that raises the question, you know, for the viewer too, you know, okay, well, who is the hero? Someone who has been given a certain task and a certain responsibility by some providential force, or is he just kind of like Bartim's character? Is he just a result of chance? Did he just stumble upon a crime scene? But then in addition to that, I think it's important to recognize that, well, actually, if he had just taken the money 
and never gone and never gone back to the crime scene, he would have been fine. Like he would have gotten away. I suspect. I guess there would have been a problem with the uh, <laughs> with, with the tracker device. But but to say that um, you know it's the real problem starts when he returns to the crime scene. And why does he return? To do an act of goodwill to bring someone water, right? Isn't that isn't that why he returns to the crime scene to bring this guy water who asked for water? And so that's the real reason why he finds himself in the predicament that he, that he's in. That's the real reason why he is he is a hero. He's, he's a hero because he was trying to do the right thing, even though things are complicated. And so, yeah, I love the way that the film raises this big question of yeah, what makes a hero? What makes a villain? What makes goodness? What makes evil? Is it just random forces colliding or is there a deeper drama at play? And again, I will um, always believe that McCarthy and Cohen brothers in, in, in his wake are arguing that no, there's, there's something deeper at play. I know we have to wrap up soon, but are there any closing thoughts from either of you? I wanted to end with a brief McCarthy quote, but Father Allen, anything you're thinking of? No. Excellent. Um, I, I do think, of course, cinema and novels... As, as, as T.S. Eliot said about poetry and verse, that it should have splendor on the surface as much as in the depth. There's something about, like, we watch movies and read books because we, we like the process, the style, you know. And I think this movie is at that sweet spot. It's the early 2000s. Um, I thought stylistically it was just, I mean, you're there in this, you're there in this whole scene in Texas, um, I thought it was, but I also I also wanted to just take a moment to recommend McCarthy's prose because I think in, in the written word it's almost just as vivid. I did find that one scene um, just to give a sample, a promotion of McCarthy's work. So this is when in the Border Trilogy, all the pretty horses they first arrive at the at the ranch in Mexico where they're going to be. I'll just read a few sentences with your permission, Father Luke, leading this podcast. Please, just he's. He's so good. He writes, They rode all day and the day following through the hill country to the west. As they rode, they cut straps of the smoked, half-dried deer meat and chewed on it, and their hands were black and greasy, and they wiped them on the withers of the horses and passed the canteen of water back and forth between them and admired the country. There were storms to the south and masses of clouds that moved slowly along the horizon with their long, dark tendrils trailing in the rain. That night they camped on the ledge of rock above the plains and watched the lightning all along the horizon provoke from the seamless dark the distant mountain ranges again and again. Crossing the plain the next morning, they came upon standing water in the Bajadas, and they watered their horses and drank rainwater from the rocks, and they climbed steadily into the deepening cool of the mountains. Until in the evening of that day, from the crest of the Cordilleras, they saw below them the country of which they'd been told. The grasslands lay in a deep violet haze, and to the west, thin flights of waterfowl were moving north before the sunset, in the deep red galleries under the cloud banks, birds moving like schoolfish in a burning sea, and on the foreland plain, they saw vaqueros driving cattle before them through a gauze of golden dust. They made camp on the slope of the mountain, spread their blankets in the dry dirt, and then they go. They basically go down there. I just think he's uh, – it's so good. It's, it is so good. Remember when they first set out? It says that the, the galaxies were swirling 
above them or something in the very, very beginning of the first book. Yeah, so many good moments. By the way, did you know that apparently the Coen brothers, when they first picked this film as one to adapt, one thing they were really struck by with it was the almost total absence of much dialogue hmm. in the film, in, in the book, and that therefore it, they said, it was the idea of the physical work that somebody does that helps reveal who they are and is part of the fiber of the story. And I thought that that was great that that rang out to them as as a mark of McCarthy's work, kind of like the passage that you were just touching on, just the way that the physical world and the way that our lives as physical beings manifest our, themselves to others, um, that reveals the, the inner being of each creature. Until next time, what is our next film, Father Allen? On the Waterfront. On the Waterfront. 1954. With the who's the Marlon Brando? Marlon Brando. All right. Who could have been a contender next time? And why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down. Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the time. I wear the black for those who've never read or listened to the words that Jesus said about the road to happiness through love and charity. Why you think he's talking straight to you and me? Fine, I do suppose In our streak of lightning Cars and fancy clothes But just so we're reminded Of the ones who are held back Up front there ought to be A man in black I wear it for the sick and lonely old For the reckless ones Whose bad trip left them cold